Thanks, guys. Great. Well, I hope you're uh, able to take part in the, the month of prayer as well. It's been a, a really good thing. Hope you're having a good weekend. Everybody doing well? Yeah? Okay, good. Good deal. Well, today we're going to continue on in our series called The Difference. And uh, today we're going to tackle the religion of uh, Judaism. Uh, next week we'll, uh, look at the, uh, we'll look at atheism. And then the following week we'll conclude uh, with Mormonism. Uh, I hope that the information that uh, we've been presenting has been really helpful to you. I hope that it's allowed you to be better equipped. Um, but beyond that, and really our motivation for doing this series is that our hearts would, would be enlarged um, for the lives of other people. Um, we believe to our core that the God of the, the Scriptures desires to extend His love and His grace and His mercy to all people. And so we want to be a part of that. A few years ago, I had the privilege of, of going over to Israel and uh, learning some of, of the history of Judaism and the history of Christianity, and, and it was so rich and, and so important. Um, that said, I stand before you today, and I, I don't know everything there is to know about Judaism. You might have been invited here today by a friend, and you would say of yourself that you're a practicing Jew, and uh, I just want to welcome you. My intent this morning is to very respectfully and accurately um, talk about the history of Judaism and then also some of its core beliefs and, uh, and core traditions. I want to start us off this morning by doing a brief interview with a man of Jewish descent from our, our church. His name is uh, Eugene Maleksum, and uh, Eugene has a wealth of knowledge on Ju- Judaism. And, uh, but before we jump into that, would you pray with me? And uh, let's just ask the Lord to come and to speak into our hearts, and, and then we'll do uh, some talking with Eugene. So, Lord, we come to you, and uh, Lord, we just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Lord, it's a privilege for us to be able to worship you together in this place. And, and Lord, we pray um, that your word now would go forth. And God, that you would um, not only teach us, but God, would you soften our hearts. And Lord, would you whet our appetites for who you are and what you have for us. Um, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Great. Well, Eugene, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us um, here this morning. Uh, it's been a privilege to get to know G- Eugene over the last um, couple of weeks here. And... and um, Eugene spent the first 14 years of his life living in Israel, and uh, so he has a wealth of of experience just kind of culturally, but he also has a wealth of knowledge. He's um, continued to be a student of Judaism, and uh, so I wanted to ask him just a couple of questions here this morning. The first one, Eugene, tell us how living in in, um, uh, uh, that culture for 14 years, how did you ultimately come to know Jesus Christ? Well, Jeff, um, in the early 1990s, uh, during the course of my study, at the University of Nebraska here in Omaha. I uh, was introduced, like many students, to the theory of evolution, uh, Darwinian theory, and uh, as a result, I became an agnostic. But uh, God had a better plan for my life. Uh, He sent a number of uh, Christian people uh, in my direction um, to witness to me, and that is why I'm here today. One of those people was my wife, um, who sits in the audience. And uh, she, she and I formed a friendship over the course of two years. Uh, she used that time to uh, witness to me. Uh, she shared with, with me the, the fact that she believed in a Jewish Messiah, the Messiah that she claimed to be the, the Messiah of my people. And I listened, but uh, I, didn't, I respected her point of view, but I, I, was, uh, um, I refused to believe. But God overruled. He had a, a better plan for my life. Um, uh, God used a course in philosophy, uh, critical reasoning, classical philosophy, to draw me near to him. Um, later on, a pastor in a local Messianic congregation gave me an Old Testament Bible, which I appreciated. 
uh, very much. I started reading it right away and became familiar with uh, Old Testament prophecies. The more I read them, the more I saw that uh, it pointed to the Messiah, to Jesus. You know, passages like uh, Zechariah 12:10 was striking to me. They should look at me, the one whom they've pierced, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. Yeah. Uh, I said, who else could it be? Where it says they shall ask him, what are the wounds between your hands? He shall answer, I got those in the, in the house of my beloved friends. To me, that was striking. I said, who else could it speak? Oh, Jesus. So a couple of um, uh, what happened was one afternoon, I was sitting in the cafeteria at UNO, and uh, and I prayed to God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I said, I'm confused. I don't know if you exist or not. So please show me a sign. Reveal yourself to me. And I reasoned that if he does, then, then he's, he's there. But if nothing happened, then maybe there isn't God. A uh, couple of weeks later, uh, I was sitting at a uh, room, a large room, studying for a biology exam, a final. And God appeared, manifested in the room in a, in a form of a, of a rushing wind. And uh, I heard voices saying in the Hebrew tongue, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts who was, who is, and who is to come. The whole earth is uh, full of his glory. And uh, that, in a nutshell, is my uh, conversion story. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Uh, wow. Yeah, praise God for that. Thank awesome. You. One of the things that is true about Eugene is not only does he know a lot about Judaism, but he has a heart for people, and particularly um, those of Jewish descent. And so he is very active in reaching out to them. And uh, the last question I wanted to ask you, Eugene, is um, for us, how can we build bridges, um, and bridges for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of, of those that God has put in our path um, who might be of, of Jewish descent? He's, one of the things that, that I, I learned was, as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, you actually have probably a better opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ to a Jew um, than someone of Jewish d- descent. And so, mm-hmm. Eugene, talk to us just a little bit uh, about that. Uh, that is uh, true, uh, Jeff, uh, very much true. Orthodox Jews especially, they view people like myself kind of like the enemy, the traitor, because uh, the Talmud, which is their uh, <coughs> religious uh, authority book on, on commentary on the Bible, discusses people like myself. And, sure. and so uh, because of it, like Jeff said, you have a better opportunity to witness to uh, some Jewish people than myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the first thing you want to do is form a relationship with them, a genuine fellowship, a friendship, show them you care about them, um, and uh, learn to love them, become acquainted. Uh, second thing is uh, pray about everything you do. Ask God to open the door for you, for you to witness to them. Um, uh, secular Jews, the majority of Jewish people are secular, so it's easy to approach them, to, to have a dinner with them, invite them to lunch maybe. Uh, conservative Jews and Orthodox uh, may be less willing to accept the invitation because, remember, they live by strict dietary laws, strict uh, ceremonial laws. So they're not trying to be offensive or anything like that, but <clears throat> don't be offended by a decline in the invitation. But uh, try to um, uh, be inquisitive and, and maybe meet them on their terms. Ask if you can participate in their ceremonies, in their uh, synagogue service, uh, maybe a holiday like Passover or tabernacles. Go and, you know, help them build a sukkah, a tabernacle on the feast. They'll be glad that you come and you'll learn something about the biblical festivals and, and so forth. And um, finally, be, uh, be prepared. 
when God has opened the door to share the message, uh, familiarize yourself with Old Testament Messianic prophecies, uh, such as the 53rd chapter of Isaiah that you're about to share with the people, and uh, Zechariah 12.10, and many others <coughs> uh, passages in the Old Testament. Um, you know, all, all the rabbis uh, acknowledge in the Talmud that all the prophetic scripture is speaking about them, the coming day of the Messiah, and on that point we can all agree. So. Very cool. I just want to say this before we're done here. Eugene is a, a great resource um, if you have questions about Judaism after today. So, Eugene, thanks for joining us on stage and really Thank yeah, you appreciate your life. Thank you. Well, in order to understand uh, Judaism, one of the things that's really important is for us to do is to be able to understand the life of one particular man. Um, the history that we're going to look at today has its roots um, for Judaism, but also for Islam and for Christianity. They all tie their roots right back to this. These three world religions all tie their roots right back to one man. His name was Abraham. Uh, these three religions that are vastly different have that thing in common. Abraham is known by all three of those as a historical figure that had great significance. You might remember last week or, or two weeks ago, we looked at Islam. And uh, one of the things that, that we saw was that Muhammad, uh, the founder of Islam, viewed, viewed Abraham as the, the greatest prophet. Moses viewed Abraham as a, a great prophet. Jesus Christ pointed back to, to, to Abraham as a prominent figure. Uh, he's seen as the one that God used uh, to begin his original re revelation to mankind. And so for, in order for us to understand Judaism this morning, it's important for us to understand uh, the life of, of Abraham. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to begin. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to talk more about this in a little bit, but these words from Genesis are a key part of some of the holy books um, uh, for Judaism. They're a part of what is referred to as, as the Torah. Um, know this about Abraham. The context in which we're going to jump into the life of Abraham is this. Abraham is being raised in a very polytheistic culture, a culture that worships a plethora of gods. His father was actually a, a, an idol maker. He made idols. So the landscape upon which um, Abraham was raised is very polytheistic. Lots the worship of many, many gods. Yet, for some reason, God chose Abraham. The place where he lived is called Ur. It's, uh, now it's uh, southern Iraq. The events that we're about to read about took place about 4,000 years ago in, in 2000 BC. Genesis uh, chapter 1, uh, or yeah, Genesis chapter 12, sorry, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I swore to you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, think about this for a second. If I asked you this morning, hey, have you heard of Abraham before you got into the room today? Almost all the hands I'm sure would go up. If you just approached someone on the street and said, hey, have you ever heard of Abraham, a guy named Abraham Bible? Does that ring any bells for you? People would say, yeah. So think for a second about this. This was a promise that was made 4,000 years ago. This promise has definitely been fulfilled. But know this. When this word came to Abraham, when he got this word, hey, from, from this word from God, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Know this about Abraham. He wasn't a young guy. It wasn't like Abraham was just out of college and he was looking for a wife and, and ready to start a family. Abraham was 75 years old. And so this word from God, it would have been strange to Abraham. It would have been very strange. He would have been kind of like, well, I mean, imagine the day even that Abraham went home. And he said to his wife, Sarah, who wasn't much younger than him, said, hey, Sarah, 
we're about to have, we're about to start a family. And we're not going to just kind of have the average 2.5 kids and a, you know, a, a nice house and a dog. No, no, no. God says we're going to have a nation. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be huge. And it didn't go over so well with her. She was probably thinking, oh, he's getting old, right? You know, but, but yet God said this. He said, I will make you into a nation. I will make your name great. Look at verse three. It says, I will, God speaking to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And get this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. From generations to come, from generations to come and come and come and come. Beyond you, through your bloodline, Abraham, the world will be blessed. Now to Abraham, I mean, just even imagine what this is like for Abraham. He's hearing this with the nations, all this. Abraham wasn't a world traveler. This would have been like, okay. I mean, it wouldn't have had a whole lot of significance. We get some more detail to this promise. Look at chapter 13, verse 14. It says, lift up your eyes from where you are and look to the north and the south, the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that, any, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Look at chapter 15, verse, chapter 15, verse 5. Again, the Lord, it says, the Lord took him outside and said, look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He was saying, it's going to be vast. Abraham, I'm about to do something in you. It doesn't make sense on a whole lot of accounts, but it's going to happen. This next verse, chapter 15, verse 6, is a huge verse. It's one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. God sets the stage for how men and women can have a relationship with God. Verse six, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Notice what Abraham did. It says that he believed the Lord, not knowing what was next, not knowing what was around the corner, not understanding this whole thing, looking at his wife and saying, no way she's gonna have any more kids. How can this possibly be? In the midst of uncertainty, it says, Abraham, what did he do? He said, whoa, I believe the Lord. And the Lord, it says, it credited it to him as righteousness. In essence, it, he put righteousness on him. Why? Because he believed. Abraham was declared righteous before God because he believed. You might come here today and maybe you would say of yourself, I'm on a journey and I'm looking for God and, and um, I haven't submitted my life to Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm a searcher. I'm a seeker. And, um, and maybe you have questions like this. How do you know God? How do you have a relationship with God? How do you stand before God at the end of your day and be right with him, be right before him? Note this, this promise, what's happening in chapter 15, this is hundreds of years before the 10 commandments were given. This is hundreds of years before Moses stepped on the scene. There is no Judaism yet. There was no Islam, no church, no synagogue, no law. Yet Abraham, very imperfect person, just a couple chapters before this, Abraham is kind of in a situation where it looks like he could get into trouble. And so he, he looks to the lady next to him, which is his wife, Sarai. And he says uh, to the people, he says, she's not my wife. She's my sister. So that they'll, they'll bless him and they won't harm him. This guy is very imperfect, but yet he's declared righteous before God. Why? Because he believed. He said, God, I, I believe who you are. And I believe that you'll do what you said you'll do. I believe. 
Don't miss that. That is a very important piece of Jewish history. It's also a key part of the the foundation of Christianity. That might be the most important thing that you could take away this morning. Abraham is right before God. Why? Because he believed. Yet the people lost sight of this. The Jews, they lost sight of it. Islam lost sight of it. Christianity loses sight of it. And then we see 2,000 years later when Jesus comes on the scene, this pattern begins to reemerge. And then after Jesus is gone, the Apostle Paul comes and, and there are people that, that kind of argue with Paul, and, and Paul could, because Paul's message was this, faith alone. How do you have a relationship with God? Apostle Paul would say, oh, faith alone. Faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the people began to push back on him, the religious leaders. And what did Paul do? He pointed him right back to this text and said, hey, don't you remember your history? Remember Abraham. He was declared righteous before God. Romans 3, why? Not based on the law, but based on belief, based on trust in God. Back to Sarai, Abraham's wife. She's getting a little anxious. She hears about this so-called big family we're supposed to have that they're not having and haven't been able to have. And so she gets a little anxious and she proposes a, a new idea. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed uh, to what Sarah said. Now, now this was a, a, a bad idea, right? Don't read this and go, hey, hey look, what's, what? no, 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 no. Bad idea then, horrible idea now. Uh, soap opera in the making, right? Not a good deal. But Abraham, you know, good submissive husband, right? Whatever. He goes along with the plan. And, and this infuriates Sarah because guess what happens? Right out of the chute, guess what happens? Hagar gets pregnant. She gets pregnant and, and, and Sarah begins to treat her so poorly that Hagar, she leaves the house. She says, I'm done. I can't handle it anymore. She goes out in the desert where she hopes to die. Angel of the Lord appears to her and said, hey, Hagar, it's okay. I've got a plan for, for you. I've got a plan for, for the child inside of you. Go back and submit to Sarah. Time goes on and Hagar gives birth to her son. They name him Ishmael. It's a side note here. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But Muslims would point to the life of Ishmael as the bloodline that linked the Arab people to Abraham. It's huge. More time passes. Now Abraham is 100 years old. And finally Sarah gets pregnant and has a son. And they name him Isaac. Now that Sarah has a son, there's not a whole lot of need for Hagar and this child, so they're kind of pushed away. And as you can imagine, this causes trouble for Abraham because Abraham, he's not married to Hagar, but Ishmael's his son. And so the Lord kind of shows up to Abraham and comforts him and says, hey, I'll take care of Ishmael. I'll take care of Hagar. I've got a plan for them. But I'm going to make into a nation through Isaac. I'm going to build a great nation. That's where your focus should be. Isaac grows up. Abraham and Sarah, they're, you know, they're raising him. He's growing up. And, and then one day something very strange happens. God speaks to Abraham and, and says, hey, I want you to take your son. You're, you're only, the only son you've got. The son that, it really, it's a miracle that you even have him. I want you to take him up this mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. Now to Abraham, he knew about sacrifice. This is, he lives in a culture where they were sacrificing animals all the time to atone for sin. So he, he, knows, he knows what this is about. And so does his son Isaac. Now, it was um, not completely unheard of 
to sacrifice a child, but it definitely wasn't common. And it surely wasn't right to sacrifice your own child. So this is a weird thing. This is a strange word from God. And Abraham's going, whoa, this doesn't add up. But he follows through. And so Abraham took Isaac and Isaac's a young boy now. And they, they started up this mountain. And, and at one point, you can just kind of picture this. Isaac, you know, tugs on his arm. And, and uh, man, just a couple weeks ago, I'm out sledding with my son. So we're walking up a hill together. Can you imagine this trip, though, for Abraham and Isaac? It, Isaac pulled, you know, on his arm. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad, I see you've got the wood. And, you know, I know that we're going to get the stones. We're going to do the altar. But where's the animal? Where, where, where's the animal? It seems like we're missing a pretty important part. I, he, knew about, he knew about animal sacrifice. This wasn't foreign to him. He knew what they were going to do. And Abraham said to him, Isaac, God will provide. They keep going and you can imagine the struggle. You can imagine what it was like and how confusing it must have been when Abraham knelt down and he bound the feet of Isaac and then he bound his hands and then he picked him up and he put him on this stone altar. He reaches back with his knife, probably looks in his son's eyes as he's going to slay his son. And in that moment, God stops him. And it's as though God says to him, now I know you believe. And then God makes this promise to, to Abraham that is the foundation of Judaism. And it's also the foundation of Christianity. This is the catalyst moment. Look with me at, at uh, chapter 22, verse 17. Right after this has happened, don't, don't do it, Abraham. And then he says this, verse 17, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, get this, all nations, not just a couple, not just Israel, no, 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 all nations on earth will be blessed because you obeyed me all nations not just some all nations now now why is this so important here's why because everything in the scriptures the old testament and the old testament and in the new testament it points back to this promise that god would bless not just a jewish nation but that god would bless who all nations that god would bless all nations through this people israel that god that they were going to become a family and then a kingdom and then a nation and then god was going to bless all the nations through them. All people would be blessed. Fast forward in Jewish history, you get to the story of, of Joseph. We see the people then, they're living in slavery under major oppression for 400 years. God then raises up Moses. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. When the people are in Egypt, they multiply, multiply, multiply. They become, they become a nation at that point. They receive the Ten Commandments. God's promise to them is still alive. But remember, God hadn't just promised to make them into a great nation. It wasn't like, hey, I'm just going to keep blessing just, just you. No, no, no. The promise was to Abraham. That through Abraham, that there would be a blessing that would come to all the nations. Not just one great nation. No, no, no. It's bigger than that. It's not, no, it's not just one little thing. No, no. It's, it's big. It was a big blessing. Fast forward 1,400 years later after that. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. And it's as though God gives the people a reminder, these Jewish people a reminder. He's saying, hey, don't forget, it's not just about you. I'm going to bless the world through you. I've established you as a nation, but why? I've established you as a nation because I want you to be a blessing to all. Look at, look at this with me, Isaiah 42, verse 6. 
says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. So picture like a, a parent just grabbing the, the, the hand of their child. That, that's the picture of God, what he's doing here with Israel. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and, and will make you to be a covenant for the people. And this wasn't just like a small group of people. No, no, this was all people. I will keep you and will make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. It's like saying, hey, Israel, I'm going to make you a light to all the nations. I've done something special with you. And, and for that reason, you're, you're precious to me. But your purpose is you're going to be a blessing to, to all the nations. Now hit the pause button on, on Jewish history for a second here. 600 years after that, a man named John comes on the scene. And his message is this, hey, there's someone coming. There's someone coming that's greater than I. And, and John kind of had a following. So, so people asked him, read this in John chapter 1. People said to John, hey, John, are, are you the one? Are, are you the one or not so much? And John said, no, 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 I, I'm not the one. I'm only here to prepare the way. There's someone that's much greater that is coming after me. And then John chapter 1 verse 29 says the next day he was with the people and he's, he sees Jesus walking towards him and he says, and imagine this, this is in a culture where sacrifice of animals was very common. They understood this. They got the temple. Thousands and thousands, animals after animals, they understood sacrifice. So John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now they knew about lambs. And so it was like, oh, who? The lamb, like the lamb or like another lamb or like, you know, the lamb, last week lamb. We understand, you know, God made lambs. We get that. But what is this? No, no, it's, this is the lamb, the lamb, the lamb of the world that takes away the sin. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And if you were there and if I was there, we probably wouldn't have gotten it either. But Jesus, the lamb of, of God, did what the lamb of God was sent to do. And the Romans, they put him on a cross and they crucified him and then died for the sin of the world. The key difference between Judaism and Christianity is how we view Jesus Christ. I want to come back to that in just a few minutes. But, but before that, I want to give you a brief overview of, of some of the important distinctions and celebrations of Judaism. That's a lot of the history. But now I want to give you some of the specifics. You might jot this down. You might wonder where do, where do they get their instruction? What are the holy books for Judaism? The most important writing um, in Judaism is called the Torah. Uh, there are two parts to the Torah. There's a written side, there's a written Torah, and then there's the oral Torah. The written Torah is what you would know as, as the Old Testament in your Bible. The Jews would refer to it as the Hebrew Bible. It's broken down into three parts. There's the five books of Moses, there's the prophets, and then there's what's referred to as the writings. Then there's the oral Torah. This consists of three books that were called the, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Midrash. And these books were a collection of rabbinic um, interpretations of the law. So it's kind of like a how-to manual on, okay, how, how do we live out the law? Volumes and volumes. It's important to know this too uh, about Jews. There, there are different types. Um, like You would understand denominations. There are different types, different denominations. There's three major categories that, you, that they could be broken down into in the, in, in the Judaism faith. The first one is this, Orthodox Judaism. They refer to themselves, and, and, and this makes sense, as Torah true. 
meaning this, they follow the Torah. They're, they, they're, they're devoted to the Torah in, very, in a very strict way. All 613 commandments of what they call the mitzvot, they, they count. They count those, they know what they are, and they seek to, to live by them. Orthodox Jews, they distinguish themselves by their clothing, right? I mean, they, they keep kosher, which means this. It means they eat food from, that, that's permitted by the Mosaic law. Strict observance to the Sabbath they would have. This is the smallest group in uh, Judaism. The second class would be this, Reform Judaism. These are the most liberal Jews. Jews who do not follow the, the Talmud strictly, but they try to adapt all of the historical forms of Judaism to the modern world. This would be the largest group of Jews that w- would be known here in America. And then there's, the, then there's conservative Judaism. These are Jews who keep some of the requirements of the Mosaic law, but allow for adaptation for others, like the dietary things and, and some, of the, some of the other um, uh, laws that they would follow in Orthodox Judaism. Okay, now I want to tell you a little bit about the celebrations and the holidays. Because if you understand the Jewish calendar, it, it kind of makes sense. As to, okay, here's what they celebrate. So I want to very quickly run you through this list. Here's the first one. The first uh, celebration or holy day, it's called the Sabbath. This comes on a Friday night and it runs through uh, Saturday night. This is very important, particularly to an Orthodox Jew. I remember being in Israel and, and on the Sabbath, the elevator, uh, they kind of flip a switch and, and you don't push a button on the elevator that day. That elevator stops at every single floor. Why? Because some of the interpretations of the law would say that would be work to push that button on that elevator, right? Very, um, very strict observance to the Sabbath an Orthodox Jew would have. Very important. The next one is called uh, Rosh Hashanah. It's the celebration of the new year. Ten days later, they have what they call the Day of Atonement, or it's called Yom Kippur. Five days after that, they have a holiday called Sukkot. It's the Feast of Booze. It lasts a week. It celebrates the gathering of crops. And then you've heard this before. Then they have Hanukkah, commemorating the dedication of the temple. And then they have what they call Tubishvah, it's similar to what we would know as Arbor Day. They celebrate that in January. And then there's a festival called Purim. And it celebrates the survival of the Jews against the threatened genocide that they faced in the 4th century against Persia. Then there's Passover. Passover celebrates the, 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 the liberation that they got when they left the bondage in Egypt. And then, and then lastly, Tisha B'Avah. It's where they mourn the destruction of both of the temples. Very very important, all of these. This gives you kind of a big picture of what, the Jew, uh, of what the calendar, the Jewish calendar looks like. The goal, know this, the goal in Judaism is this, it's to make all of life holy. How holy? That's, it's unknown. The dividing line between Christianity and Judaism is this, it's Jesus Christ. The Jews would say this about Jesus, a very diverse opinion on who Jesus was. Some would say that he was a deceiver. Some would say he was a rabbi. Some would say, oh, he was a good prophet. Others would say he was a teacher. Some would say he was a mystic. But they would not view, all of them would not view Jesus as the Messiah. A Christian believes that Jesus was the son of God. He was fully man and fully God. We point to his life, his death, and then his resurrection and what that proved. We look at his death as the final sacrifice. Animal sacrifice, it made sense for a time. 
but we would say Jesus was the final sacrifice. The scriptures are clear. Romans chapter three, no one is declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, we are justified freely because of the grace of Jesus Christ. How good do you have to be is a, is a question that a Jew would ask. There's not clarity to the question, how good is good enough? There's not clarity on that. Christians would also point to the Old Testament. Christians would point to the over 300 Old Testament prophecies that had been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. They would look at those and they would go, okay, that, that, that points. Just like, like Eugene, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I want to end by reading some of those prophecies over you this morning as, as we um, prepare to take communion together. And um, so at this time, actually, I'm going to invite our host to come forward. And, and host, if you'd begin passing out the communion elements, that would be great. Um, one note on our communion, we have an open communion at Brookside. And, and so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I would invite you to take the elements and then um, just hang on to those. And I'll go ahead and lead us through that um, together. As the hosts are passing out those elements, though, I, I want to read these prophecies to you. And, and, I, and, and please don't miss this. Let these words really sink into your mind today because this is, these are words that were spoken about Jesus Christ hundreds, get this, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he would come. Words that were fulfilled. That's why the Christian looks at the Old Testament and goes, yes, it's pointing where? It's pointing to Jesus Christ. And then we look at his life, his death, and then we, we rejoice in his resurrection. Let me read the first one to you. 